day of pride. Woo! So exciting. I cannot believe how little we planned this. I know. <laughs> we, we have that we had <laughs> random weeks off where we were in between seasons, this, that, and the other, and we put together an introduction to Pride Month episode yes. on accident. Yes. Now it will be releasing a week into Pride Month, but right. that's okay because we're in the spirit right now. It'll be the first episode released in Pride Month. Oh, well, well, we had one come we out, had today. One come out today. today. Okay, so, 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 yeah, next week. So, the eighth. We were one day off, but still. Fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's going to be great, though. We have two really big stories to tell today. Big stories, <laughs> banger stories yes. um, that have some, you know, intricate details that we got to bang out. Yep. I'm so excited. It's going to be great. Uh-huh. <gasps> but uh, we're not here to talk about pride, even though we are going to do it. Yeah. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women and LGBTQ plus women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. Mm. So just be prepared for that. We dibble dabble. Yes. Uh, I actually used a book for my research this week. That's a book? Di- that, that's different. And that's a book that we've interviewed the author <laughs> yes. before. So fine. Let me tell you, I would have been lost. This story would have been two pages long if it wasn't for that book. Right, because it's like the, I remember the Wikipedia being like so short. So There's short. nothing about her. Well, I um, did some research, but most of it is just. Well, I did a decade and a half worth of research yeah. on, on this on this episode. Um, okay, so you are busy mm-hmm. right now. You are reseasoning your cast iron skillet. Yes, it's gotten rusty over time, and you've got to oil it and put it in the oven. And you don't want to burn yourself by stopping in the middle of this and looking up this person on your phone. Exactly. So, in order to keep you and your hands safe, we are going to describe them for you. We are going to get a little. Physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So this is kind of a weird choice <laughs> yeah. for Pride Month, but an interesting choice because it's been on the forefront of culture since yeah. 2020. We are doing, or I am doing tonight, the famous author, J.K. Rowling. Um, and so listen to her story with care, because just yes. like every woman we cover, I am going to cover the goods and bads of this person, yeah. and specifically how it relates to Pride Month. So she is a middle-aged white British woman with sometimes blonde highlighted hair and sometimes like a dyed red hair Um, but the more her wealth has increased, the more it has been styled and dyed accordingly. Like you can like tell when you look at a picture, not by her age, what year it is, but by how nicely her hair is done, (laughs) how much money she has. She typically smiles with her lips closed and wears lipstick, like usually a darker red or like a peachy red and black eyeliner on the top and bottom of her lids. She has this look about her that almost says I'm better than you in most pictures, <laughs> kind of um stodgy or waspy or like mm, however you want to say it. She's definitely richer than me. She is richer <laughs> than uh, all the authors alive today. Not combined, but then she's the most wealthy author alive. So yeah. 
I don't know. She she didn't come from a rich background, mm-hmm. but she comes off like she was born and raised in wealth for sure. Yeah. Okay, who are you doing, and what do do they look like? I am doing Charlotte Cushman. Charlotte was always described as a handsome woman. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people actually thought she was beautiful, and other times they thought that she had a funny face, and handsome was the only way they could describe her. <laughs> she had a square face with what some called a lantern jaw. It was like very like sharp and like mm. square. Um, she had big, round-set eyes, round cheeks that she could sharpen up with makeup. She had a tall, thin, lanky, strong body. She was taller than any woman on stage and most men. (laughs) She had wide shoulders, but large breasts and wide hips. I mean, she had every trait. (laughs) All of them. How you can be tall and lanky and also have big boobs and hips. It doesn't seem fair. Uh, But what this all meant for her was that she could go back and forth playing both men and women on stage. And it was very believable. Mm. And that's what she looked like. Great. And we'll get into some of her fun outfits in the story. Oh, <laughs> perfect. Okay. So tell me what I'm drinking. Okay. This is called The Celebrity. <laughs> uh, because obviously, as we know from the author interview, she was America's first, first celebrity. celebrity. Um, so I modeled a few pieces of peach in the bottom of a cocktail shaker. I added an ounce and a half of bourbon, a half ounce of lavender simple syrup, and juice from one whole lime. Uh, you shake it, strain it into a glass with ice, and you top it with club soda. Cheers. Cheers. Hmm. The lavender's coming through more than I thought it would. Yeah, I, I like it. it. It's it's very light. I feel like I could drink this and still be on a diet. Like mm-hmm. some cocktails, I don't feel that way. Yeah, and I think it's because I used fresh peach mm-hmm. instead of peach liqueur. Right. So really the only things that have any kind of substance are like, you know, the uh, bourbon, bourbon and a little bit of simple syrup. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's really it's good. Nice I love it fresh. so much. Mm. I thought it, it it almost tastes like a gin drink because it's so light. Yeah. Even though it's a bourbon drink. I wouldn't have been able to tell you there's bourbon in there yeah. if I didn't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Delightful. So what do you know about Charlotte Cushman? <laughs> so all I know about her is what we learned from the author interview. And, and we don't always have time to read the entire book. So we'll read like chapters here, intros and summaries of things there. So I know she was America's first celebrity. I know she was a stage actor. I know that she did a little bit of like cross-dressing back and forth. And I believe um, when she was acting, it was still seen as kind of irreputable mm-hmm. to be a stage actor. Um and I, I don't really know anything else about her. As you said, like when we were doing research for the interview questions, there was not a lot yeah. involved, mm-hmm. but which is why it's awesome that we ha- were given books about her. Yeah. I mean, I literally could not done, have done, I could not have done this research without the book Lady Romeo by Tana um, Wajuk. Mm-hmm. I feel bad. I can't remember how to pronounce her name. There's a J and a C and a Z on a row. Um <laughs> So I'm sorry, Tana. And I also can't remember if it's Tana or Tana. It's Tana, Tana. for sure. Okay, perfect. I remember because I messed it up on the interview and had to re-say it. Excellent. <laughs> um, but yeah, that book was so incredibly helpful. Yeah. Because um, there wasn't any, like, YouTube videos on her. And, like, any YouTube video that was, there was just an interview with Tana. <laughs> right. And I can't believe it because this woman, I she was so incredibly famous. Mm-hmm here and in london and in rome and i just like can't believe that it's so surprising that we don't know who she is yeah yeah 
Let's get into this banger. Okay. Charlotte Saunders Cushman was born on July 23rd, 1816 in Boston, Massachusetts to Mary Eliza Babbitt and Elkna Cushman in what was later dubbed the Year of No Summer. Mm. In 1816, I think this is so crazy, it snowed in June and they celebrated the 4th of July wearing mittens and coats. Stop it. (laughs) And maybe it was a sign that Charlotte was not going to be your average child. (laughs) Um, When I was on an Uber ride in Boston, this guy was like, there's only two seasons in Boston, construction and winter. (laughs) Because <laughs> there were like all these cranes oh and things. God. I was like, oh, okay, fun. <laughs> so I guess it's cold a lot. I guess so. Um, and we know that uh, Charlotte was the oldest of four children. We don't know too much about her early life, but we do know a lot about her lineage because she was a direct descendant of Robert Cushman, who helped organize the Mayflower Voyage. He was a leader and a great advocate for emigration to America. He became a preacher in the colonies and was known for giving the first sermon in America, Ooh. which is bananas because Charlotte will go on to do everything that the product, like the Puritans hated. Perfect. <laughs> Theater and being queer. <laughs> I love to spit on my ancestors' graves. <laughs> it's a treat. <laughs> Growing up, Charlotte was a remarkably bright and active child, excelling over her schoolmates. She loved to run wild through the woods and climb high into the trees but she also loved books. She memorized the Bible and Shakespeare by heart, and she was always first in her class. She won the medal in arithmetic year after year, and people also noticed from an early age that she was a fantastic singer. She had a full contralto register, which I believe means that she could sing the highest highs and the lowest lows. Mm. Like She had a huge range, and she would entertain her younger siblings for hours with elaborate plays and recitals. The family was pretty well off, which was impressive because her father had built himself up from poverty. He had become a successful West Indian merchant, but unfortunately, when Charlotte was 13 years old, her father lost everything. Oh, no. And then he disappeared. (laughs) Some say that he died, like Wikipedia says that he died, but the book Lady Romeo says that he simply disappeared. So I'm thinking he just bailed on everybody. (laughs) Um, Either way, though, he left the family absolutely destitute with debt collectors literally swarming their home, taking away all of their possessions. Charlotte, being the oldest, was now burdened with helping her mother take care of the family financially, so she dropped out of school to work. Her mother used what little she had left and bought a boarding house to make ends meet, and this was one of Charlotte's very first jobs. And it was not a nice job. It was grueling work. She was emptying out chamber pots, getting the lice out of the mattresses. just like absolutely disgusting. But she kept going with the idea that maybe one day she might be able to get out and pursue a singing career. Then, years later, in 1834, a Scottish vocalist named Mary Ann Wood was visiting Boston. And Charlotte felt like this was her chance. She found out which hotel she was staying in, and she literally just went and knocked on the door of her hotel room and was like, can I sing for you? Can I audition for you? And she's like, I'm not really, like, putting on a production. She's like, I just, I want to sing for you. And she's like, okay. I am so glad I don't live in the 1800s. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) So she sang, and then Mary asked if she could go get her husband so she could sing for him, too. And she said, wow, this bitch has got talent. And she's like, 
I am going to help you out, actually, because I think you're really great. So she contacted an old friend, James G. Mater. He was a ladies musical director. And he said, you and she said, you have to coach this girl because she is going to be a star. So this not only started a wonderful professional connection between the two of them, but a personal one. Mary Ann Wood admired Charlotte's talent, but she also admired her spirit and her dedication to hard work. So Charlotte starts voice lessons with this guy, and in exchange for the lessons, because obviously she can't pay for them, she cleaned his house. And eventually, when Charlotte was 19 years old, she made her first appearance in an opera in the Tremont Theater as the Countess Almaviva in The Marriage of Figaro. Mm. This was so successful that she soon got her second big gig as Lucy Bertram and Guy Mannering. So now she's off to the races, and she is soon traveling to New Orleans with the company to perform. Big moves. Exciting. There's a problem. (laughs) Charlotte was now singing difficult soprano parts every night on stage, and her voice started to give out. Oh, no. And she's also performing in bigger theaters. And she was like, they weren't like mic'd up. (laughs) Exactly. And she said, my voice could not make it to the back of the theater. She was like, I just couldn't get it out there, you know. And she's just so disappointed because she's like, I thought that opera was going to be my ticket out. And now, like, I literally can't sing anymore. (laughs) Right. So she's also not, like, necessarily, like, a ballad, like, she can't like belt it you know some people can yeah. like, really belt that's mm-hmm. not her she's a good singer but not a belter i guess so i couldn't really figure it out or Is maybe it... there's just too much strain on her vocal cords maybe like i don't think she was doing her vocal rest yeah uh, <laughs> or like you know she went from zero to 60 it seemed like pretty quickly and like a lot of operatic singers spend years in training and that builds up the muscles in their throats and maybe yeah. that was part of the problem yeah. i don't know maybe it i'm was. pretending like i know anything about this i have no idea <laughs> Um, and then there's the other issue at hand. She had a contract for a certain amount of performances that, you know, she was like, well, I certainly don't want to keep going out on stage. And I think, I don't think you want me to go out there either to sing. I'm not doing very well. Um, but someone else's tragedy ended up becoming her savior. Theater owner, James Caldwell's wife had suddenly passed away and he needed a performer to take her place. Charlotte was new in town had a bad reputation in terms of her singing bad voice reputation. at the moment. Bad reputation. <laughs> uh, but people were saying, they're like, but she's very emotive and expressive on stage. So maybe she could be an actress. So they called in Charlotte and asked her if she could take on the role of Lady Macbeth in Hamlet. Ooh, that's a big role to start yeah. with. She agreed, but she's understandably nervous. I mean, it's a huge role and a difficult one. Charlotte had none, never done a play before, only opera. But as soon as she hit the stage, people saw that she was a natural. She wowed the people of New Orleans night after night. And one critic even wrote, it was impossible New Orleans should long retain such a woman. Wow. I I want critics to write about me like that. (laughs) And he was right. Charlotte was soon introduced to Thomas Hamblin of the Bowery Theater in New York, who wanted her to join his theater. So she had long been wanting to kind of get into the New York theater scene. Uh, She wanted to go to the Park Theater, but when she contacted them, they're like, okay, you can come up and audition. And she was like, I don't think you understand. I'm a star in New Orleans. And they're like, okay, (laughs) we we don't don't care. care. You still have to audition. And she was so offended. (laughs) Calm down, (laughs) Charlotte. Charlotte, you've been good for a second. Like, come on. (laughs) This is New York we're talking about. Uh So to the Bowery, 
it was, where she was offered lead roles simply based off of her reviews from New Orleans, which is what she wanted. <laughs> and this was possibly because they were desperate for real talent. The Bowery had a reputation for having a terrible audience. Apparently, the crowd was full of, <laughs> quote, rowdy apple-munching kids and also men engaging with sex workers in the third tier. Ooh. But Hamblin thought that Charlotte was just the person to kind of turn things around and make them a more reputable theater. Her first performance as Lady Macbeth was on September 12th, 1836. She went on stage, and even with a horrible fever, she was very, very sick. <laughs> she gave such a performance that the only noise the audience made that night was one of a standing ovation. So things were looking up for Charlotte. She had a solid contract with the theater. She was getting rave reviews. She was even named the star of the Bowery. Even in a joint like mm -hmm. that. But since nothing remains easy for Charlotte, her fever came back with a vengeance and she had to take a few weeks off of work to get better. What, what's going on? What does she, she, what does she have? Super sick. arthritis. 18, arthritis is no. not a fever. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be perfectly clear. I believe clear. rheumatoid is somewhere in there, though. Who knows? Um, so... She has to take off work. She gets better. She's ready to return. <laughs> the theater burns to the ground. Wow. She's like, the Great. luck. So I lost out on a couple last weeks of pay, and now there's no place to go back to. This and was insurance fraud, yeah, for probably, the Bowery? Probably. <laughs> and to make matters worse, she had invited her mother and her youngest sibling, who was 11 years old, Augustus, to come down and live with her. So basically now, like, they're on a train down, and she's like, I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> so she got a job in a theater in Albany. Um, so they all go up to Albany, New York, and Augustus starts attending the Greenbrush Classical School. And this is a school where, like, the children of senators and, like, the New York elite attended because Charlotte always loved Augustus. She wanted the absolute best for him because Aww. she felt really bad that by the time Augustus came around, I mean, they were in poverty. She was like, he never knew the life that I did when, like, we were well off. And she always hated that. Yeah, and she was the oldest sis sibling, right, mm -hmm. you said? So, yeah. yeah, she probably feels a little bit of guilt of, like, I'm supposed to be at home helping my family mm -hmm. take care of this and make money, and I'm yeah, not. Exactly. So Charlotte's becoming more and more popular and was now getting the attention of other actors. Junius Brutus Booth, a very famous actor at the time, and, yes, father to John Wilkes Booth. I was about to say. <laughs> the both of the Booths. Mm -hmm. They were both the, famous. The Booth family. Yeah. It's like the Wahlbergs, baby. Yeah. Or like the, they were a huge the Peel part. Family. Yeah. <laughs> they or were a huge the... part of this uh, scene. Like, I did not know that when I was a kid mm -hmm. that, like, they were all very famous actors. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it would be <laughs> it would be like if the Hemsworth brothers. Yes. That's a much better. Right. Like, <laughs> they are so famous. And, like, after. It'd be like if the least famous Hemsworth brother murdered the president. Right. And then, <laughs> listen, he jumped. This is crazy. I saw he jumps off of the balcony after murdering. Murdering Abraham Lincoln and shouts one of his brother's famous lines. Yes, he does. Can you imagine if the least famous Hemsworth jumped down and like yelled a line from Thor? <laughs> That's a whole. I saw a whole like meme online comparing the Hemsworths <laughs> to the Booths <laughs> and like how it would go down. That's and so they, I was like, no way. That's terrible. That. <laughs> so she wants the best and. Julius Brutus Booth 
Also, Baltimore native. Woo, 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 woo. John Wilkes. Yes, my mom, that one room schoolhouse that was at the church that she grew up in, mm-hmm. like, she went to school in this, like, schoolhouse for, like, Sunday school or whatever. He went there. Yeah, I visited it's his grave not long crazy. ago. <laughs> it's a really Absolutely. big grave, like, for somebody who did a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. So Junius is interested in her. He's a bigwig in the theater scene, and he seeks her out to play his Lady Macbeth. Mm. So it's her career's like get like more and more like people in the know are like getting around her. So her career is going well again, but all of her money is going toward making Augustus's life absolutely magical. She even buys him a horse so he, so he can keep up with his classmates and a little velvet blue riding jacket. Like she just wants him to have this incredible life. But she can't spend a lot of time with him because her theater schedule is crazy. So she's already planning, like, well, maybe we can go to back to Manhattan and that way, like, I'm closer to the theater that I work at so I can spend more time with him. And then suddenly, Augustus dies. What? He fell off of the horse that she had bought him. Well, listen, horses are dangerous. I know. It's so sad. It's a Christopher Reeve situation. But what? <laughs> Wasn't he Superman? Yeah. He was the original Superman. Fell off a horse. That's how he got paralyzed. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's where that came from. Terrible. So Charlotte falls into a depression, um, but she keeps working and, you know, because she had to. And she said the work was eventually what saved her. She said it gave her a way to kind of conquer her grief and she put it into her acting, which made obviously her playing of Lady Macbeth even more dramatic Mm. and incredible. And soon, she finally made it to the Park Theater, where she gave one of the, her most mesmerizing performances as the old gypsy woman, Meg Merilius. I don't know if that's how you say it. Never heard of this character. <laughs> <laughs> she completely transformed her appearance by using uh, makeup and her costume choices, because I didn't know this, but actors provided all of this themselves at the time. There was no costume department. Like, really? You had to bring your own clothes, <laughs> which is very interesting. Um, but her talent for transforming her body with makeup and clothing was so insane that people could not believe that the young light life charlotte cushman was actually this old crone wow and you can still see pictures of her in this costume Mm. on it's on a wikipedia page does she have any like tiktok how to's on like (laughs) (laughs) transforming into an old crone is she like the evil queen (laughs) in snow white so things are back on track she's getting over the death of augustus and then another sibling shows up at charlotte's door her sister susan who at 14 had been bamboozled into marrying a 50-year-old man who lied about being wealthy and then abandoned her when she got pregnant. What a douchebag. He's not great. So Charlotte brings her into her home, and Susan gave birth to her child, Ned, when she was 15. Susan was not in a good place. This was not the life that she had wanted for herself, and Charlotte thought, well, the stage in my career saved me when I was at my lowest point. So maybe you can do the same for Susan. So once Ned, Susan's son was ready to be left with their mother, Mary. So like they're all living together. So Mary just kind of becomes the childcare. Susan takes to the stage and it was great for her. And it kind of made her feel like she had a purpose again. And it was nice. Like, them working together because Charlotte already knew the ins and the outs. So it's just a little bit easier for her to get a career going. Um, And although Charlotte was obviously successful, um, her theater career was also filled with enemies or people who didn't like her. And there were a few powerful people who tried to push her out. 
In one instance, she had been cast in the play Oliver Twist, but in Please the role. Please, uh, <laughs> Would you cast me as Oliver? Yes. Just based 100%. off of that alone? Okay, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but she was cast as the role of Nancy, the prostitute. This role was normally given to someone very low in the company, not a veteran Lady Macbeth. She was being snubbed, but instead of it letting, letting it get the better of her, she went down to the area known for sex work called the Five Corners and studied the sex workers there to get a sense of who they were as people and not just as objects. She even traded clothes with one of these women to get an authentic wardrobe. And apparently she brought so much heart and humanity into this performance that people wept for Nancy when she's murdered in the play, which had never been done before. Wait, she's method acting. She is. Before that's a thing. <laughs> Walt Whitman, the famous writer, said of her performance that it was proof that America was at last ready to compete with Europe as a cultural powerhouse. Mm. Walt Whitman loved Charlotte Cushman. <laughs> Walt Whitman. Interesting. <laughs> So she's obviously crushing these roles that are kind of meant to knock her down a peg. But after three years of being at the Park Theater, her contract was up. She wanted to renew it on the condition of getting a raise, which she obviously deserved. But they said no. They didn't want to give her a raise or they didn't want to renew it? Both. (laughs) It's an Amy Sherman Palladino thing. Yes. Um, So she ends up moving to Philly to manage the Walnut Theater. But then the famous actor William McCready comes to New York and he asks her to come and act with him because he's heard how good she is. She can't leave the walnut yet because she has a contract there and she doesn't want to say no. So she just does both, taking the train back and forth between Philly and New York. Talk about a commute. It's ridiculous. Especially trains back then. This isn't like the mark. No, it's not. (laughs) McCready is really impressed with her and basically tells her, like, look, you need to go to London. Um, Because America, as Walt Whitman pointed out, isn't ready to accept a woman with your level of talent. Wow. Get on the West End, girl. Mm -hmm. Get there. The Mm -hmm. Globe. We need you. (laughs) Wait, that had burned down. We need you at the Globe. (laughs) All her theaters burned down, I guess. She's cursed. Um, So while still supporting her family, Charlotte starts to put money aside for herself for the first time ever in the hopes of going to London. But even though she soon has the money saved up, she still wasn't going. But it wasn't a fear of going across the pond for the first time. It was because she had fallen in love. In 1843, she met a woman named Rosalie Scully. She was the daughter of the famous artist Thomas Scully. And they met while he was doing a portrait of Charlotte. Rosalie was interested in painting. So they painted her at the same time so she could get practice. The two women soon became very close. And Charlotte spent every free moment enjoying her company and the company of her very big welcoming family. They spent time lazing around Rosalie's studio, going on long walks and horse rides. Charlotte often bought her jewelry to show her her affection, and in return, Rose would do miniature paintings of Charlotte for her. With the confidence of a new and exciting relationship, Charlotte decided to challenge herself professionally. She was going to play Hamlet. No more Lady Macbeth for her. It's time to be the title role, the lead, lead character. This is a very challenging role, and only one other woman had been successful in the part, a woman named Sarah Siddons, and people loved her in it. One critic said, she's better at playing a man on stage than a woman in real life. (laughs) (laughs) But even though she's making headway as Hamlet, she's still not feeling fulfilled with the theater scene in America. So 
She reignites her plans to go to London. Rose was supportive, but the idea of separating was really weighing on them. So one weekend, while Charlotte was visiting, the two of them were privately married on July 5th, 1844. 1844. Okay. They're married in where? What state? Um, They're in Pennsylvania still? I literally, uh, she is so back and forth between so many She's places. on the East Coast I, somewhere. She's on the East Coast. I don't know if Rose is in, I feel like she's in Philly. But I don't know if she's in Philly or in New York. Yeah. I can't tell. So how did marriages like this take place? Did you find an accepting, like, um, pastor? Or was it an accepting government official? Or was it just, like, a, in lieu of doing an actual ceremony? Or did people not give a shit yet? No. So this was more so just something the two of them did together. Okay. It was almost more like a... Obviously, there was no legality to this. Like, no one else was present, from what I understand. There wasn't even, like, any cool pastor that was involved. It Mm -hmm. was just, like, they considered themselves married because they went out into a field and, like, swore their undying love together. Exchange rings. Yep, they had rings. Till death do us part. Sickness and health. Yes. So they basically conducted their own private wedding ceremony with rings and just did it themselves because they knew that they couldn't do it with anybody else there perfect um but right before she left for london she burned all the letters to keep rose safe while she was away because people had started talking about her relationships with women Mm -hmm. because charlotte was a huge fucking flirt (laughs) (laughs) and she wasn't hiding the fact really that she was interested in women like young women would come through in the theater world and she would flirt with them and like all this other stuff um but now that she's in this more committed situation, people are noticing it a lot more. They're like, oh, they're they're connecting the dots. Yeah. Okay. And some people had even discovered her secret marriage to Rose. So it was absolutely time to leave the eastern seaboard. <laughs> she finally arrived in London in November of 1844 and was hired at the Princess Theater. She agreed to play Lady Macbeth if she could secure the role of Hamlet later. The reviews, as usual, were stunning, but she was homesick. She missed her family, and she missed Rose. And Charlotte had been writing her letters, but had gotten no response. Finally, Rose's father replied and said he was cutting off their relationship. The rumors that they had a romantic relationship had gotten to him, so he cut off all ties immediately. And then to make matters worse, her mother also heard the rumors and was writing her scathing letters because she was like, you are about to ruin fucking everything. Well, you know what? It's my life. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what money like, are you making? Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm supporting you. Exactly. Okay. Come on. But one person was still on her side. Dear Susan, her sister. So she wrote to her sister. She goes, come join me in London. I need a Juliet. Wait, I'm sorry, guys. I said she would secure the role of Hamlet later. She was going to secure the role of Romeo. Romeo. I meant Romeo. Wherefore art thou? Exactly. Honestly. So she accepted Lady Macbeth Macbeth, on the condition that when they do Romeo and Juliet, she gets to play Romeo. So her sister comes over, plays Juliet. So the two sisters played the star-crossed lovers. Perfect. I love that. Some people loved and some people hated. They're like, that's a little weird. (laughs) I'm fine with it. They're actors. (laughs) Whatever. So she's enjoying it. But no one could 
no one could uh, say, though, that she wasn't fucking killing it. Like, yeah. people loved her in this role. Um, so she's enjoying her success in <laughs> London, and she even joined a salon of young free thinkers who were interested in a new philosophy called feminism. <laughs> they Brand talk- new! <laughs> Mary Wollstonecraft, where are you? <laughs> are you having fun? They talked about women being more independent and making their own money. Charlotte often liked to say, I am my own businessman. Whoa, Cher! <laughs> Share some Mom, shit I like that. <laughs> and she also started up a new relationship with a hip new young writer named Eliza Cook. Okay, I'm sorry. There's no closure with Rose. I'm not fine with that. You have to go home and it's say bye really bye first before you like start they a whole like, new relationship. Never. 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 Just like as far totally as I could off. tell. Her dad was like an artist, though. Yeah, her dad was a famous artist. So, so I think that he really had like final say in this. Like he was like, absolutely not. OK, well, why couldn't she just send some money back to Rose to come over to London? How old is Rose? This is upsetting. Why can't she travel? I don't know. I, I imagine like Rose was probably around like 18 or so. Oh, OK, so too like young. Charlotte was probably like and Charlotte's in her 20s. Maybe her dad point, like so sold not, her off to a dude like maybe. after that. Like you have to marry this guy like, and I'm gonna going to get the dowry. Right. Okay. So Eliza. Okay. So Eliza's Eliza. in the scene. Woo, woo, woo. Apparently, when Charlotte saw her saunter by wearing a men's dress shirt, she was attracted <sighs> immediately. The hottest thing a woman can wear, honestly. <laughs> you could belt it in BSJP, but exactly. honestly, I just like it loose. <laughs> they were together for nearly two years, but Charlotte liked a lot of ladies, like we said. And after a while, uh, she started to kind of drift away from Eliza. And poor Eliza, she was devastated. And then, in a so wild twist. So Charlotte's a player. Yes, she is. Okay. And then in a wild girls twist. girls yeah. too. You know that song right now? It's so good. Okay, uh, yeah. go ahead. Um, so then Susan, her sister, gets married to this wealthy guy again. But her son, Ned, didn't like him. So Wait, actual wealthy or fake he wealthy? He is wealthy okay. this time. Got it. So she gets married. Ned doesn't like him. But Susan isn't willing to, like, deal with either Ned being mad at her for marrying this guy or not marrying this guy for her son. So Susan leaves with this guy and Charlotte just adopts Ned, <laughs> Ned her son. Her son. Weird. What's Ned a nickname for? Nedward. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. I'm serious. I don't know. I wonder if it is Edward, though. Edward, and it's just Ned. Like, if you're Edward the second or Edward Jr., yeah. there is no the second. If you're Edward Jr., are you Ned? Yeah. Well, it goes Ed, Eddie. Ed, it goes Ed, Ned, Need. Stop. <laughs> and then Sneed, because everybody needs a Sneed. <laughs> That's the thing everyone needs. <laughs> You can buy them for what two ninety eight. What is it? I, I, I wish I memorized every Dr. Seuss book. Um, and also, so like now Charlotte's a mom, and she needs a new Juliet, which wasn't hard to find because everyone wanted to work with Charlotte um, and to play Juliet. Yes, exactly. And Ned was well taken care of. Like honestly, he was probably better off with Charlotte because she was worth around six hundred thousand dollars back then. Money back then. Money. Whoa, which she's like a multi millionaire. Like she's so wealthy. Uh, so because she's obviously a bona fide star in London, New York starts to play around with the idea of bringing her back home. The Park Theater is under new management, and they're like, sorry, you were treated so poorly here a few years ago, but we want you back. So she's excited by ideas, but yet again, a girl is getting in the way of her plans. She had started a very serious relationship with a woman named Matilda Hayes, who everyone called Max. And very this cute. time around, they were not nearly as secretive as she had been before with their relationship. <laughs> 
They would come to parties together wearing matching outfits, which usually consisted of collared shirts, ties, waistcoats, and full skirts down to the floor. They even got professional photographs taken in these outfits. That's like Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue. Calm down. It's so good. Now, of course, they couldn't be blatant everywhere they went. They weren't, you know holding hands in Westminster Abbey or anything like that. (laughs) But they had found these like kind of circles of like-minded people. Um, Because I do want to point out that like at this time, some women who had engaged in similar relationships had been whipped in the public square. Like it was still like not okay. Like corporal punishment. Yes. Okay. See, I didn't understand that was happening. I thought you would get like a fine or like spend a couple weeks in jail. This is still like, it's still really bad public beatings. Yeah. That's, but you know, this is the age where like a lot of people were kind of starting to do a little free thinking. So there were bigger pockets of people that you could like be a little more free in from what I understand. Um, and maybe it was when too many people, who weren't in those circles were finding out that Charlotte said, hmm, time to leave. But this time, Max was coming too. Headlines read, the greatest American actress is finally returning to the U.S. And then in smaller letters somewhere else in the thing, it would say, accompanied by her friend, Ms. Hayes. (laughs) (laughs) But she wasn't just coming back to New York. She was taking her show on the road to Chicago and St. Louis and Boston. And she was welcomed back with absolute fanfare she was truly america's first celebrity with papers writing about what she was doing who she was seeing what she was up to and people literally scrambling to catch sight of her any chance they got like this, this is like was, the beatles like yes. the f- fever of people There's coming out to scream frenzy. in the streets yes great uh but max didn't love the u.s <laughs> and charlotte Aww. could see that So in Boston, the pair had met another couple, Grace Greenwood, the first female reporter for the New York Times. Very cool. We had an Alice Greenwood recently. Mm -hmm. We're just a famous crew. We really are. There's a lot of girls that really do things. And it was a sculptor, Harriet Hosmer. So this new friendship really lifted Max's spirits because there were just four queer women who could be out with each other, go on these double dates, and like, they even called themselves the Jolly Bachelors, which I think is so cute. And I imagine it's like more stomachable for the public to see a group of four women out together than a group of two women, because then it's not as like scandalous, maybe? I guess. Like, yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, these it's were like just a like ladies four lunch professional women. Four. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and soon the Jolly Bachelors decided that they wanted to do something radical. Move to Rome together. <laughs> Super crazy. Let's yes. let's get as close to the papacy as possible. <laughs> right and then, then flaunt it. So yes, Charlotte was leaving the stage for a little enclave of Rome that was basically mm-hmm. this like refuge for like lesbian artists. They had started like a commune in like this what? town. It's yes. It's a convent, is what you mean. Yeah. A convent. <laughs> but yeah, it was like this whole community of these women who were just were like we're all artists we're all lesbians and we just want to live out in peace together in paradise like a leper commune yeah (laughs) put it in hawaii except wow um and for a few years everything was bliss also i'm not equating lesbianism to leprosy (laughs) that's a horrible thing but they were treated as lepers yes exactly exactly exactly. yeah exactly (laughs) So, 
everything was great, but soon there were a lot of jealousies and a lot of uh, there was some cheating going on. Uh, Max and Harriet the sculptor had began an affair, begun an affair, and everything just started to kind of splinter from there. Max left Charlotte, uh, but then returned to get back together like a little while later. But things were already kind of like fucked up between them. Like it's kind of hard to come back from that. Yeah. So then they returned to London so that Charlotte could go back to work. But then Charlotte had an affair with a different sculptor named Emma Stebbins. <laughs> These sculptors <laughs> out of control. I would love to interview a person on this show who had like a double date partner, regardless of yeah. the genders of your partners. Mm-hmm. And two of the partners cheated from opposite yeah. relationships. Be, yeah. I, I find that fascinating like how do you mm-hmm. handle it especially if there's children involved yeah. and the kids have been calling you aunt so-and-so yeah very interesting weird <sighs> honestly i don't like and any of my friend's husbands yeah. not even close <laughs> not even close <laughs> to that much <laughs> and then the entire relationship blew up one night when they got into a terrible fight about a letter that charlotte was writing you know because max was like is that to emma and she's like I don't know. Check his phone, baby. Yeah, exactly. It was like literally <laughs> the 1800s version of let me check your phone. Let me check your text. And Why are you writing in, in such good handwriting today? <laughs> Max chased her around the house, hit her repeatedly to see the letter. It got really fucking ugly. Hit her with a frying pan or just with her fist? Her just her fist. Okay. Just pounding. Mm-hmm. They broke up officially in 1857 after being together for nearly 10 years. Wow. I know. Solid. And then another blow. Charlotte got a note from her lawyer saying that Max was suing her for alimony. That can't work. She said that she had given up her career to move around with Charlotte for her career. So she was owed over $2,000 so she could continue living in her lifestyle. Okay, Max, where's your prenup? There's no legal. There's no... That's, legally together <laughs> where's your where way. is your non-legal it's not prenup? even like legal to be with a woman <laughs> but it went to court i can't believe that it went to court but it did and charlotte agreed to pay her the money just to put the whole relationship behind her she was like let me be done with this i really don't want to have to sit in a courtroom and like detail my fucking 10 year long lesbian relationship <laughs> like that is not what i'm here for so she was pretty hurt and sad after all this, especially because it like clearly dragged her sexual orientation into like the actual legal system, which is not nice. But thankfully, she found a lot of peace and calm in her relationship that was happening with sculptor Emma Stebbins. The two went back and forth between Rome and the U.S. so that and London, like all over, so that Charlotte could have a nice balance of working and being in her lesbian oasis. But as Charlotte likes to do, something new and shiny caught her eye. 18-year-old actress Emma Crow. So now there are two Emmas that she's seeing. The two women began an How affair. How old is she that she's dating someone who's 18? Okay, so it's, it's like 1857, 1858. She was born in 1816, so she's in her 40s? Yeah. Okay. It's not great. Not great. I love it. You know, ma- male actors do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I, But still, I don't, like, I. the age gap is hard because the one party has so much more power than the younger person. Exactly. Okay. So the two women begin an affair, and Cushman uh, often called her my little lover. Emma Stebbins, the one that she's been dating for a while, knew about it, but she thought that it was just kind of a flirtation. So she wasn't super worried about it. (laughs) But then 
To make things even more weird, Emma Crow, the 18-year-old, marries Charlotte's adopted son slash real nephew, Ted. Ned, I thought. Ned. Yes, Ned. (laughs) Ned or Ted. (laughs) So now she's technically Emma Cushman, and the two continue their affair. So she is sleeping with the same woman. Her niece-in-law. Yeah. Slash legal legal daughter-in-law. It's weird. Uh-huh. It's very weird. And is son is the son aware? I don't know. I could uh, not get a read on oh. it. But I know that like they were also having a relationship because she's soon pregnant with Ned's baby. Mm. And, and Charlotte can't do that. Nope. And she but she would refer to it as her and Charlotte's baby. Okay. There's a lot going on. <laughs> There's so much yeah. happening. Charlotte is sowing her oats, I think. Yes, she is. But soon, bigger things were afoot than this weird-ass love triangle. (laughs) The Civil War had begun in the U.S., and Charlotte was again on stage, but now in an effort to raise money for the Union Army. Well, good. At least that's the right side. (laughs) Yes. She'd even moved to D.C. at the time to try. uh, She was, like, mainly doing stages in D.C. so she could, you know, be around, like, the politicians and, like, Mm. get everyone kind of, like, on the same page. Um, So she moved in with. Secretary of State William Seward, which meant that she would regularly dine with President Lincoln, whom she said was so funny that sometimes she would forget what she was trying to say. She said he had a wonderful sense of humor. Who would have thought Lincoln would come up at the beginning and end of this story? I know. A treat. (laughs) But yeah, she said like they became, they became friends because he loved to talk about the theater he loved going to see plays and his favorite was hamlet which of course charlotte was very well versed in so she invited him to see her perform hamlet at ford's theater <laughs> thankfully he survived this one he did. i was gonna say jeopardy question what was the play abe lincoln was seeing when he got shot my american cousin that's the name of the play it's on so many trivia games memorize it my american cousin yep Okay, perfect. That's the name of the play. Now everybody knows when you're playing Trivial Pursuit, (laughs) that's the play. Um, But two years later, of course, John Wilkes Booth would kill him in this theater while seeing My American Cousin. I didn't write that down, so I just put it in there because you just But if you say things seven times, then you remember it. Charlotte was devastated, not only because she was, like, good friends with Abraham Lincoln, but she was, like, What is going on in the U.S.? Honestly. And she had known John and the Booth family for years. Yeah, they're all in the same acting circle. They're in the same circle. It's, like, weird to me that she was like, oh, yeah, like, I was close to him. It's like when you find out that, like, someone you went to high school with became, like, a mass shooter or Mm -hmm. something. You're Mm -hmm. like, what? Like, it's just, it's terrible. But she said she never did like him. She said he was a drunken devil. And, you know, she just grieved really deeply for the president and for what was happening to America. She was like, what is going on? Civil wars, assassinations? Like, I hate this. Then Same, girl. Same. <laughs> I hate it. Why is the world like this? Then she had something else to grieve. In 1869, Charlotte was diagnosed with breast cancer. She underwent an aggressive lumpectomy, refusing to use anesthetic. So she was wide awake. And they just, like, cut a chunk of her boob out? Because she was, like, like the science wasn't 100% for anesthesia. So she was, like, I know that, like, a lot of people die from, like, the anesthesia. So she was, like, I don't really want to risk that. So I'm just going to 
Did they just get her drunk and they're like bite down on this? Yes. They did a I lot of surgeries know. during the Civil War though, like without anesthesia. Brutal. They just like mm-hmm. got people drunk and like amputated limbs. I cannot. No thanks. But the this tumors was, like, came ugh. back even after this. I was gonna say, how did they even handle cancer back then? Yeah. They really couldn't. Cut it out. Because you today you have to do like a combination surgery chemo. Yeah. They're just like Yeah. It wasn't good. So, with Emma Stebbins by her side, the ladies found a mansion in Newport, Rhode Island to move into. (laughs) And the whole crew eventually came and moved in, including Ned, Emma Crow Cushman, and other friends and family. The whole crew's here, baby. (laughs) They called it Villa Cushman. Started from the bottom, now I'm here. (laughs) So, while her partner of many years was healing, Emma Stebbins had been working on a gift for her. She had been asked to design a fountain for the Bethesda Terrace in Central Park. Oh, my gosh. Stop it. So if you know what I'm talking about, it's a famous scene and a lot of movies and stuff. But I always think of Gossip Girl for some reason. But it's like the beautiful thing that looks like a palace that has all those arches. It's like reddish brick. Yeah. Like a deep red. Pretty. So there is. Everybody mistakes it for the Friends Fountain. It Mm -hmm. is not. It is not. It is not. So she had been asked to design the fountain there. No way. It's called the Angel of the Waters, and it refers to a Bible story where a man was healed by Jesus. Emma wanted to heal Charlotte, but she couldn't. So a statue themed around healing was her way of showing Charlotte her love. And for years, people were like, kind of a weird statue. Like, the angel looks kind of like half masculine, half feminine. Yeah. And that was on purpose because it was a dedication to her lover. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Isn't that amazing? Like I know. A very famous thing that people walk by. I mean, millions of people look at this fountain every day, probably. Yeah. And just that like a famous LGBTQ woman mm-hmm. designed that fountain. Yeah. And it's for, it, for her partner. For her partner. I think about that all the time when I think about Sally Ride and how they yeah. had her partner come dedicate that boat like after she died. It's so sweet. It's like yeah, people were acknowledging that this was a thing for so much longer than, like, yeah. the world gives it credit for. Yeah. So know, next time we see the fountain, Miss Krista. <laughs> we know you're there. We know you're there. <laughs> you can think of Charlotte Cushman. <laughs> Charlotte's battle with breast cancer and depression worsened, but she was still dedicated to the stage. Um, so instead of performing full plays, which she obviously couldn't do, she would simply perform recitations, which people still loved. Then, while walking home from the theater one night, Charlotte caught a cold, which turned into pneumonia. And on February 18th, 1876, Charlotte Cushman died at the age of 59. The entire country mourned the death of the greatest American actress. Thousands fled to Boston to pay their respects, and tens of thousands of people gathered in the streets of Manhattan to mourn together. After Charlotte passed away, Shakespeare kind of fell out of favor in the New York theater scene. The times were changing and more modern American works were desired, but there's also a general feeling that if Charlotte Cushman was not going to be performing Shakespeare, what was the point? And that is the story of Charlotte Cushman. It's such an incredible story because yeah. like the the men in that story, all of their names are so like deeply entrenched mm-hmm. in history. Like her ancestors that came over on the Mayflower and the president and the Booth family. And it's like, why do we never talk about the most, the first actual American celebrity? Yeah. Like there are scenes that like Tana describes in the book where it's like 
her carriage is pulling up somewhere and people are like surrounding it trying to get a glimpse of her like i cannot emphasize enough like how fucking famous she was right like it's incredible it was like paparazzi pre-camera yeah they were just like the newspapers were like on let me sketch you (laughs) describing her getting out in like morse code yeah it's amazing it's such a cool story and i love um all of her female relationships i love that she wasn't like a person that was like super monogamous her whole life like that she kind of moved through life like a traditional celebrity but with a different like orientation yeah i love that what a cool story i'm so excited to compare her (sighs) to um there's a lot to say madam (laughs) rolling all right see you in a few We are back. Yes. With the the more controversial <laughs> half of this episode, but also like a woman I've wanted to cover for years. I'm really glad though that we did wait. Um, yeah. Because I I'm we started know, this podcast two years before the controversy. Yeah. So it's like always rough when like we do someone and then it's like something terrible comes out about uh-huh. them and we're like, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> and I think like we cover so many people, especially women who have like done. Some really, t- like, we've covered serial killers. Yeah. But I think it's almost harder to do women that are in the gray. Mm-hmm. The gray area is really difficult to cover because, like, the the benefit versus the drawbacks is yeah. really hard to talk about. Yes, it is. Because, like, obviously, like, we're all too into the Harry Potter world to just throw it out. Right. And I don't want to throw it out. Right. You know, I think. You know. I think purchasing power is where most people have yes. decided to put their, like, we can still read Harry mm-hmm. Potter, we can discuss Harry Potter, we can love Harry Potter, but we don't need to buy anything new. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. Yeah. It's a perfect way to do it. Yeah. Um, okay. So, do you want to know what you're drinking? Yes, it looks delightful. The so, little rosemary looks like a witch's broom. <laughs> it's adorable. This is called Transfiguration. <laughs> and... <laughs> class of course and it is um frozen raspberries i did fresh raspberries because i didn't have time to freeze them because i don't plan ahead and i muddled them in the bottom of a cocktail shaker and then i put in a whole bunch of coconut rum Mm -hmm. lime juice apple cider vinegar and you shake oh and um strawberry kombucha and then you shake it all up Pour it into a glass and you put in a maraschino cherry and rosemary. Oh my gosh. Cheers. There is so much going on in this. So cup. much. I don't taste the apple cider vinegar though, really. I get it a little bit when it first hits me, mm. but then it's so overwhelmed by the coconut. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Lots of coconut. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the only alcohol in it mm-hmm. so we've got a light on alcohol tonight it's mostly like mixers mm. that we're drinking yeah the vinegar hits me in like the back of the throat is this the first time we've used vinegar in a cocktail i don't think i have you might have i might have i don't remember yeah it's a little sweet i think i might uh, if i was to do it again i would take out the um we don't need the simple syrup i think it'd be fine with the lime and the kombucha and all that other nonsense mm. all right i really like it though it is good. Okay, so tell me what you know about Joanne Kathleen Rowling. <laughs> so I obviously know that she 
wrote Harry Potter. I think the story goes that she like started it like on a napkin in a cafe when she was like super poor and like broke and you know whatever. Uh, I know that she has become now the most well-paid author like of all time because like it's just spun out into this universe. She has theme parks. Yeah, real. <laughs> Um, and then I know that she disappointed people a couple years ago, as we've mentioned earlier with her comments about trans people, which is like really disappointing. Um, so, but yeah, but that's really all I know. I don't really know too much about her personal life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm excited to like really get into it. Her story is so interesting and she was such a hero for so long, especially to, a lot of communities who felt underserved, yeah. like the LGBTQ plus community felt like she really understood them. And I think that's why it was such a slap in the face right. when this happened. Um, it's kind of like I saw myself in that character and now yeah. you're telling me that like that was like a delusion. Like, right. There are things like when she came out in an interview and said that Dumbledore was gay, people were like, wow, that's really amazing. And pe- a lot of people equate Lupin dealing with being a werewolf with HIV or AIDS positive like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like um correlations that people drew that now they're like rethinking in their heads and that's really hard to feel shunned by somebody who was a hero for so long so I'm gonna tell you the hero part of her story and then also the kind of the backlash that has happened in the last couple of years um as I said right at the top of the show Harry Potter is like my was for a very long time my big fandom so I have learned a lot of this just throughout the years. I've watched Mm. interviews with her, you know, YouTube deep dives. Uh, I was big into MuggleNet back when we were waiting for the Harry books to Harry Potter books to come out because they would like do predictions on what they thought was going to happen. The two podcasts, um, MuggleCast and Alohomora, have people who are so deep into it that they'll Mm -hmm. be, they even call her Joe. That's her nickname. They'll be like, (laughs) Joe was thinking this when XYZ happened. Um, I watched the whole life of J.K. Rowling and then, um, you know, just did a little reading online just to make sure I filled in all the blank spaces. Perfect. So Kathleen, or Joanne Kathleen Rowling was born July 31st, 1965. And that birthday might sound familiar because it's the birthday of our favorite little wizard hero, Aww, Harry Potter. I did not know that they had the same birthday. Yeah, that's ex- so cute. <laughs> except he was born on in 1980, not 1965. But mm-hmm. her birthday is July 31st, just like his. She was born to a working class family. Her parents were... Anne and Pete Rowling, who met the previous year to when she was born on a train. They were sharing a trip from, guess it, King Cross Station, London, to meet uh, their naval postings in Scotland. Her mom, Anne, was one of the Wrens, the Women's Royal Navy Service. Wow. And her dad was in the Royal Navy. So they're together. They're 19 years old, and they leave the Navy because Anne is pregnant. So they get married uh, three months before they have Joe. Uh, So 19, pregnant, married, brand new baby. Her dad starts working on an assembly line in a factory and eventually works his way up to management with Rolls Royce, I believe. And her mom worked as a science technician, like in a school. I think neither of them ever went to college. Mm -hmm. So um, they're kind of, they're definitely seen as very low middle class or working class in London. Mm -hmm. Or in Scotland at this point. 
when Joe was two years old, she had a little sister, Diane. Uh, and shortly after that, they moved to Gloucestershire. <laughs> Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. I think it's, I think it's, is it Gloucestershire? Gloucestershire? Sure. Sure. It's right next to Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce <laughs> and New Hampshire. <laughs> Wherever. Okay. There, Joe attended primary school and they lived near a family with the surname Potter, which she always liked and obviously incorporated into her books. <laughs> Her- Imagine being that family right now. <laughs> Excuse me, Joe Rowling lived down the street from me. <laughs> and my last name is Potter. Her parents read to her and her sister as children all the time. Mm. Their dad's favorite to read was The Wind in the Willows, and her mother read Richard's scary books to them Aww. all the time. So little busy town. <laughs> and Joe just loved the little animals being mm-hmm. a part of the story. At six years old, uh, she attempted to write her first book. It was a story called Rabbit, and she would write stories all the time and read them to her little sister. It's only the two girls. She's the oldest. This story was about a rabbit and a bumblebee, and I just want to point out for the sake of Harry Potter fans that Luna Lovegood's Patronus is a hare. So rabbits are very connected to J.K. Mm -hmm. She was nine uh, when her family moved and bought a church cottage style house and she began attending a nearby Church of England school. Her teacher was described as a battle axe that struck fear into the hearts of children like Umbridge. She even seated Joe in a dunce row after she performed badly on a test. What? A dunce row. What year is this? That's insane. The the little cap on? on? Who knows? And based on Joe's writing, we know how she feels about teachers in general. She knows there are some good ones, but she is very, very critical in Mm -hmm. all of her writing, Harry Potter and other, of the education system in general. The headmaster of this school, his name was Alfred Dunn, and there is definitely a loose fit for the Dumbledore character, some have said, in his personality. She joined the Brownies, though, when she wasn't completely satisfied in school, and this was a great escape for her. The troops all got to pick their little names, and their little troop names were fairies, pixies, sprites, elves, gnomes, and imps. That's so cute. (laughs) And, you know, those are her fantasy vibes Mm -hmm. that she gets with. She tried her hand at writing again when she was around 11 or 12, a story called The Seven Cursed Diamonds. And we know how Joe loves the number seven, the seven (laughs) horcruxes, seven books, whatever, eight movies, get over yourself. (laughs) She described this period of her life as being a very bookish, small, quiet child that lived in her daydreams. For secondary school, she attended Wading School and College. It was a state school, so a public school. So again, her parents did not have money for the boarding schools that she writes about Mm -hmm. in the future. She was picked on for being shy. She was inspired by her favorite teacher who taught her how to do structure and precision in her writing. And this teacher's name was Lucy Shepard. She was knees deep in classical literature that her aunt and her teachers would always give her. She would read anything. And we know from her writing that she loves the classics loves them she loved you know Shakespeare and Homer and all the greats and she incorporates their ideas into her stories like the way that centaurs are in other stories that's how they're in her story you know she uses the tropes of past fiction we also know she uses a lot of Latin to create new words within her world when she was a young teen she was given a 
Huns and Rebels, which is an autobiography of the civil rights activist Jessica Mitford. And this woman became Joe's hero. She devoured every book this woman ever wrote. And this kind of begins her social justice vibes. And we know before any of this trans stuff came out, a lot of her books are about tyrannical governments and social justice and how it's unfair. Joe was also referred to as very, very creative. Her mother and sister were very supportive of her enthusiasm for storytelling. Her mom led her daughter's brownie troop activities and was a great cook and worked full time. And it's just a great woman. The three girls would walk to and from school together and share stories about their day. And they just had a great relationship. Mm. Her mom's boss even described her mom as absolutely brilliant, a sparkling character and very imaginative. (sighs) But Anne Rowling would soon be diagnosed with a serious strain of multiple sclerosis. She was only 34 years old and Joanne was 15. Oh, my gosh. Anne had to give up her job and the rolling home became complicated with her mother's illness and then a strained relationship between her parents because of the illness and no money and the economic issues. So home was a difficult place for her to be as a teenager. She wanted to be at school, not at home, just like some other famous wizard characters we know about. And then her very own relationship became very strained with her dad. Um, He had definitely wanted a son, as most men did at that time, and he let her know that. And she became very obsessive, compulsive in school, always needing to follow the rules and be right and do the right thing. And all of this does sound familiar. The perfect mother figure, gone too soon, hating being at home. So Joe in high school began to smoke, listen to alternative rock. She cut her hair like in that weird like bang short, like almost like Joan Jett Mm -hmm. hairstyle. She started using black eyeliner. She wanted to play the electric guitar. And she had a best friend named Sean Harris. And she and Sean Harris used to escape together in his turquoise Ford Anglia. <laughs> Perfect. Stop it. Sean! Come on, Sean. Can you get out of oh here? Oh, my gosh, with your Weasley ass. Come on. <laughs> I know. She even says that Ron Weasley is loosely based on her dear friend, Sean Harris. I love that. Mm-hmm. There's just, like, all these, like, little things that, like, as you're going through, like, I could just see it, you mm-hmm. know? Because, like, I've not been as well-versed in the universe as you. Yeah. But, like, obviously, like, I read all the books. I've seen all the movies. And, like, I don't know. It's just interesting picking up on these, like, little things. And you can see, like, where and why she put them in their books, as most fiction writers do. Like, they don't just come up with all this shit in their head. They're yeah. basing it on things that have happened in their life mm-hmm. and just fantasizing it a little yeah. bit. She became much more interested in schoolwork when she was upset by home because it was a perfect escape. She was not a super exceptional student at school, but she was one of the top in her class. She took A-levels in English and French and German and achieved two A's and a B and was then named head girl of her school. Wow. She has always said that Hermione is loosely based on herself, and that's why Hermione is uh, wrong often in the book. Mm-hmm. Like. There isn't any character that's right all the time. Not Hermione, not Dumbledore. And she says that Hermione... Not me, not Hermione. (laughs) You. (laughs) And, like, she says that Hermione's not a character she's super proud of. Like, she wrote Hermione as super annoying because she thought she was annoying as a kid. 
Like she wrote Hermione as not good around boys because she was not good around boys. But that's why we loved her. I know. <laughs> it's because it's like the full scope of like a teenage girl because it was written from such truth. Yeah. Instead of like, oh, she's the cool one that all the boys like. It's like, no, they hate everybody. Everybody yeah. else hated her. Yeah. Even the other girls hated her. Yeah. Like Lavender Brown and Parvati are like, ooh, get out of here. <laughs> So she then applies to Oxford University, but was rejected. A lot of Joe's biographers say at this time, it, it was a privileged thing. There was no way they were letting in anybody other than a perfect student to Oxford that wasn't, that went to public school. Yeah. Like she went to state school. It was, just wasn't going to happen. So she went to the University of Exeter. And although she loved English, she studied French and the classics because her parents told her that the job opportunities were important if you were bilingual. So she was an average student in college. She prioritized her social life over studying and she sat around reading Dickens and Tolkien. She <laughs> loves, loves Lord of the Rings. She's wow. a huge Lord of the Rings <laughs> I did fan. I not know that. <laughs> um, there's a famous like fan art in one of the um illustrated books of ron weasley's room and on his bookshelf that lord of the rings is like in the background of his bookshelf okay because why wouldn't the weasleys read lord of the rings of course they would (laughs) because their dad brought him muggle stuff okay Mm -hmm. she recalls doing very little work in college but she did do a year of study away in paris she says she loves france in general but by the way that she writes the Delacour family yeah. we know that she thinks that the French people are a little snooty she definitely treats them as such in her yeah. stories and the whole school all yeah. of Beaubaton yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah she graduates from Exeter with a BA after college Joe moves into a flat with her friends and takes a course in being a bilingual secretary While working temp jobs around London, she's hired by Amnesty International to document human rights issues in French-speaking Africa. So she is interpreting these letters that have been smuggled out of totalitarian governments in Africa. And, like, we see so much governmental hate from her, Mm -hmm. especially in her adult novels. Um, And while HP is about wizards, we know it's really about the ministry doing a shit job. Yeah. She also began trying her hand at writing adult novels, but none of them were ever published. Mm -hmm. In 1990, she planned to move with her boyfriend to Manchester and was often on the train visiting before the actual move. So she's on trains for a lot of time. Once on a train, she's delayed for four hours Mm -hmm. and the characters of Harry, Ron and Hermione pop into her mind, but she has no pen or paper. So all she can do is close her eyes and meditate on these characters and like try to fully explore who they are. As soon as she gets to her flat, she sits down and tries to write out the first chapter. It is nothing like the first chapter we have today. (laughs) What's the first line? Um, Mr. And Mrs. Uh, Dursley of number four Privet Drive were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. I think that's the first line <laughs> of the so. book. <laughs> okay. We have to ask Caroline. She'll know. <laughs> yes, she will. In Manchester, she is working in the Chamber of Commerce. We know how she hates the slow bureaucracy. And on December 30th, 1990, her mom passes away <gasps> while she's writing Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. She had never told her mom what she was writing, but the themes in the first book really track. 
The entire series is about a mother's love, and that's yeah. clear. She later confirmed that she was in deep mourning while writing about Harry looking in the mirror of Erised, mm. and the huge parallels with Harry confronting his own mortality and death throughout the book. Mm-hmm. The pain was compounded when the things that her mother left her in her will were stolen. And then her and her boyfriend broke up and her redundant job in commerce and her terrible relationship with her father. Like this is a fight or flight moment for her. So she sees an ad in the paper and moves to Portugal to teach English at night. What? (laughs) She just moves to Portugal. That's crazy. Like I'm going. Five months after arriving in Portugal, she meets TV journalist Jorge um, Arnates, Aran- Jorge Orantes in a bar, and they get to talking about Jane Austen. Again, anybody who loves reading like mm-hmm. she does, if you can get in a conversation about Jane Austen, like she's from London, come on. Yeah. That's their whole vibe. Also, All we're convinced London. that McGonagall's based on Jane Austen. Oh. There's not a chance she's not. There's not Listen a chance. To that Listen episode. To episode. I honestly like that was when we were still recording upstairs. At it was your early, old house. early, early episode. But I think it's a really good one. Yeah. So check it out. <laughs> you have to go on the website to find yeah. that. Though. <laughs> um. So they're bonding over literature, of course. So. She's traveling to London with Jorge to introduce him to her family when she has a miscarriage with his baby. The relationship was already troubled, and this made it work. And you know how to fix a troubling relationship? Get married. You get married. (laughs) So they got married on October 16th. Isn't that close to your wedding? 17th? When are you? I think it was the 17th. Okay. I was like, that feels really close to Katie's or wedding. was it the 16th? <laughs> Who knows? Know. Who knows? Just sometime no that weekend. <laughs> but this is 1992. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so she gets married to Jorge. They have a daughter. She names her Jessica after that civil rights activist, Jessica Isabel Rowling Arantes. Um, she's born in Portugal in 1993. So her daughter's your age, her oldest daughter. By this point, we live different lives. Yeah, very different. Very different. <laughs> My mother's your not mom's a not a billionaire. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. By this point, she's finished the first three chapters of *Philosopher's Stone*, almost as they would be published, and had the rest of the novel drafted. Unfortunately, Joanne was experiencing domestic abuse in her marriage. Oh. Um, Jorge would slap her around, and he had no remorse for any of it. The marriage, as she describes it, was short and catastrophic. She was not allowed to have a house key. Her husband. What? Yeah. He used her growing first manuscript to hold her hostage. Oh, my God. Like, he would hold on to the pages. They separated in November 1993 after he threw her out of the house in the middle of the night. She returned with the police to get her daughter, and they went into hiding for two weeks before leaving Portugal. Oh, my God. Yeah. In late 93, with a draft of Harry Potter in her suitcase and her baby, she moves back to Scotland. Nothing else. She planned to stay with her sister until Christmas. Later, her biographer raised the question of why she stayed with her sister instead of her dad. And that is when it came out in an Oprah interview that her and her father at that point hadn't spoken for nine years. (gasps) Even before her mother died, like, 
they were she was not in cahoots with them yeah. and then after her mother died he moved on with the secretary pretty quickly Ooh. which like kind of denoted like that he had been cheating for a while so it just made the whole thing really uncomfortable she's now a single mother with no support and had to go on government assistance she was getting from the government 69 pounds a week in welfare um they moved into a mouse ridden flat she was as poor as you could be in Britain without being homeless. Yeah. It was really bad. So she saw herself as a complete failure. She had been out of college for seven years. Her mom was dead. She was divorced. She was jobless. She had a baby and she was living in an apartment full of mice. But she just focused on writing and Jessica and kept going. Her friend, Sean Harris, Weasley, lent her 600 pounds to move to a nicer flat with her daughter. And there is where she finished Philosopher's Stone. Jorge then arrives in Scotland <gasps> in 94 and Joe has to get a restraining order to get him sent back to Portugal. Oh, my gosh. And what she does. wrong with him? I know. Early in that year, Joe began to experience a deep depression and she sought medical help. Um, because she was contemplating taking her own life. She just thought, like, this is it. This is rock bottom. After nine months of therapy, her mental health greatly improved. She filed for divorce, and it was finalized in 1995. She said, I found out that rock bottom was a solid foundation from where you build your life. Joe wanted to finish her book before enrolling in any actual job training. She's going to enroll in a teacher training course. Mm -hmm. She's a teacher for a while. Um, but fearing that she won't be able to finish the book once she starts, she's like, let me just finish this, get it on the table, um, and then I'll start the teacher training course. So she goes around UK. She writes in cafes by hand. She doesn't type. And many um, different spots in UK have tables that have, like, little signs really? on them. Of, like, this is where J.K. Rowling drafted this part of the book. So especially there's a cafe called Nichols, I think, or Nicholas that she spent a lot of time in. Yeah. Um, she finally also finishes the book and earns her teaching certificate and begins teaching English at Leith Academy. Um, again, her perspective on teaching is scarily accurate. <laughs> <laughs> she later said that the first Harry Potter book saved her life and that her concerns about love, loss, separation and death are all reflected in that book. Harry Potter was completed in June 1995. The initial draft included illustrations of Harry Potter by the fireplace showing a lightning scar on his forehead, pictures that she drew. And they are so cute. You know how each of the chapter headings have, like, a yeah. picture? The original Harry Potter, like, her illustrations were, Aww. like, those little chapter covers. I love that. Following um, the early enthusiasm from, like, sample readers, the Christopher Little Literary Agency agrees to represent her. She is so excited. So she starts submitting her manuscript. Well, a year goes by. Mm. She submits it to 12 publishers, all who reject it. It's so disheartening. But then... The Children's Literature Department at Bloomsbury Publishing bought it after Barry Cunningham, who worked there at the time, had his daughter read the first chapter. She finished the chapter and asked for the next one. And that's when they bought the book. Mm. Although he looked at Joe and said, you'll never make money from publishing children's books because nobody at that time made money 
from publishing children's books. Uh, excuse me, I think Beatrix Potter would have a lot yes. to say about yeah, that. Yeah, what about the ra- the <laughs> other rabbit what? book? What about the <laughs> rabbit? It was just like children's literature had gone out of vogue by the okay. 90s. Like kids were all into TV and video games. Nobody's reading. Ooh, that makes sense, actually. It was a very okay. weird time. Like I know we think of young adult fiction as a legitimate genre right now. It was not. Yeah. It did not exist. Yeah. So um, she gets awarded like a grant for childcare so that she can write Chamber of Secrets. So it's 97. Bloomsbury publishes Philosopher's Stone with only publishing 5,650 copies. She made, before the second book came out, about 2,800 pounds in royalties. You know, she's just making regular bonus money. She's still a teacher. Mm Mm-hmm. As we all know, Harry Potter is a story about a young wizard dealing with loss who defeats an evil wizard with the help of his two best friends, Hermione Granger, a.k.a. J.K. Rowling, and Ronald Weasley, a.k.a. Sean Harris. Um, As a reminder, this is around the time she picked the pen name J.K. Rowling because the publishing company told her boys were more likely to pick up a book about a male wizard if it was written by a man and not a woman. That's a whole new level of sexism I don't even want to confront. So after publishing in the UK, Joe received news that the U.S. is going to auction off the rights to the book. And to her delight, the Scholastic <gasps> Company bought the rights to the book for $105,000. She takes that money to buy a flat so that her and her daughter can move. Author Levine from Scholastic pushed for a name change saying that Americans are stupid. (laughs) They don't know what a philosopher's stone is. He wanted to call it Harry Potter and the school of magic. Mm. She was like, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the compromise was Harry Potter and the sorcerer's stone, which is what we have today in the U S but I always wondered why it did that. Yeah. And how that kind of philosopher, I think is just a different word to Americans than Mm -hmm. it is. So the first four books, there is an American version and a British version. Five, six, and seven, there's not. So you'll notice in five, six, and seven, when you read them in the U.S., there's more of them saying, like, bloody hell and, like, stuff like that. They changed that in one, two, three, and four to, oh, for, to be more Americanized terms. Yeah. But after a while, she was like, fuck America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, they can read. It's yeah, the what same are they language. Do? Not buy the next book. <laughs> right? It's the same goddamn language. Yeah. Like, it's just a couple turn of phrases. Yeah. And also, like, our cultures have crossed for so long that now that, like, if someone says bloody hell mm-hmm. or, like, I need the loot. Let me get it out like, of the boot, you know, the car. Like, yeah. We wouldn't be like, what are they talking about? <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> I think the editors were just like, Order of the Phoenix is so fucking long. I'm not changing 10 words in this book. Like, that would be crazy. Yeah. Also, the word snogging is used so many times. They're like, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to change every single snog. To making out. Yeah. <laughs> Getting frisky. <laughs> so um, it was released in the U.S. a year later. So 1998, picture little me, little Jake. Your dad went out and bought it for Jake. Yes, he did. The first Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, it was everybody was reading it. We were in middle school. There weren't many reviews at first, but there's a general positivity about the book Mm -hmm. until December when it hits the New York Times bestseller list (laughs) in a year. As soon as she started to get some fame, of course, there are lawsuits against her alleging copyright infringement because there are so many books about magical kids that go to wizard school. Right. But this one woman made a fraudulent book saying that she wrote a book called The Legend of Ra and the Muggles about Larry Potter. <laughs> now, 
she did use the word muggles in her book, but then yeah. she kind of like forged the other stuff to try to get away with it. And it's like, I think, I don't know. British people like weird sounding cute words. Yeah. Like I think muggles is just a fine word. Yeah. Also like we just talked about snogging. Yeah. Like. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. It, it didn't go through obviously because yeah. it was found to be fraudulent. But she's also sued a lot of people through the years um, mm. because really for her, it's about keeping the Harry Potter name genuine. Like she doesn't like a lot of fake offshoots of it. And for Warner Brothers, it's about keeping the money in the family. <laughs> so they're like, you cannot use this. So she has had a lot of websites taken down, a lot of books that like if you see a book written by somebody else, it has to say the unofficial Harry Potter, blah, blah, blah. Like on my bookshelf, I have the unofficial Harry Potter cookbook. Yeah. And then there's an official Harry Potter cookbook. They need little checks on them, just like on, yeah. on Twitter. Verification. The next three books in the series were released in quick succession. Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, Goblet of Fire were 98, 99, 2001 book a year. Oh my gosh. So then when Order of the Phoenix had not emerged by 2002, rumors are circulating that Joe had writer's block. But for real, Joe had won three Smarty Awards, which were for like the best book of the year for like yeah. kids and turned it for the Goblet of Fire. She said, please don't nominate me. I want to give somebody else a chance. So she won for the first three books and then said no. Yeah. And then the Goblet of Fire won a ton of awards anyway. It was the, at that point the fastest selling book of all time. She won Children's Book of the Year with it. But she wasn't happy with Goblet of Fire. That really? is her least favorite book. It's my favorite. <gasps> That's my favorite too. The reason is that was her first really big book. And it, she had to release it in one year. So she rushed it. There's a lot of loose ends. Like what the hell happens with Bagman? <laughs> Ludo oh, Bagman. Yeah. Like there's a lot of really weird loose ends in it. And she said there's one chapter in the book. She won't tell us which one that she was so unhappy with. She rewrote it 15 times. And at, she even got an award for that book from Prince now King Charles. But she was powerful enough now to say no. Yeah. Be patient. Mm -hmm. I will write this book on my own time. Not to mention her dad was dying. She was getting married. She was then pregnant. And she's trying to write Order of the Phoenix, which is the longest and arguably one of the meatiest books because it's like Harry yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder. Harry. Yep. So it's a three-year break. Unbeknownst to the rest of the world, that was when the fandom grew. Fan theories and podcasts, the earliest podcasts, are like a lot of them are Harry Potter podcasts that are 15 years old. Fan fiction is amazing at this point. This is when the movies start coming out. There's so much to look forward to. And J.K. Rowling was a part of that. She had a website where she would go on and make updates with the fan theories. Like, she was interacting with us before Twitter existed. Wow. She was very receptive to fans. This book was finally published in June 2003, selling millions of copies in the first day. Two years later, Half-Blood Prince was released. And, of course, on July 21st, 2007, <laughs> the day I got married, the actual married, not just date, but yeah. specific day, uh, the last book, Deathly Hollows, came out, and it is still the fastest-selling book of all time. I, like, just heard that fact the other day. Yeah. Like, a news podcast I listen to does, like, Trivia Tuesdays, and they were like, 
what's the fastest selling book, you know, and, and I was like, it's got to be Deathly Hallows. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> needed to know the end. I mean, we all thought Harry was going to die, which he did. You yeah. know, like, yeah, there's spoiler. <laughs> there's a lot, you know, going on. And my um, my sister, who was my maid of honor, and my mom went and stood in line till midnight to buy me the book so I could take it on my honeymoon. I love that. So they brought it to the wedding for me so I could pack it in my suitcase. <laughs> I also feel like Harry Potter was one of the first big things where people were like don't spoil it for me because some people like didn't get the book right away and they had to wait or like Mm -hmm. they're like don't tell me what happens like I feel like that was when I first kind of came into consciousness of like spoiling spoiling well some of the things that were so interesting is this was the first like fan fiction was big fan groups were big and the first big fan groups were Star Trek yeah but this is the first one that it coincided with the internet because it came out like mm-hmm. right when the internet was getting big. Yeah. So people had all these internet groups and yeah. that's when spoilers were a problem because we're in t- different time zones. Yeah. So like by the last book, they had arranged it so that the book was released around the whole world at the same time, regardless of time zone. It was. That's insane. Crazy. It was crazy. It was such a neat thing to be a part of. I try to explain to the girls sometimes like what it was like to wait three years between Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix. It was unbelievable and crazy. We're experiencing that now with the Court of Thorns and Roses. We are. It's terrible. And then I I tried to explain it to them about Gilmore Girls. I was like, because we finished all seven seasons. And I was like, imagine waiting 10 years for a year in the life. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's weird. It is, yeah. <laughs> or like just me watching The Little Mermaid. Yeah. It was 30 years ago. 34 years ago I went to see that in the theaters. Yeah. I don't know. Weird. Okay. So let's go back in time a little bit. Warner Brothers purchased the film rights from her um, for a million dollars. She agrees with a few stipulations. The movies have to be based on books that she wrote, so they can't do any offshoots. Okay. She gets to finalize script approval. And, of course, the thing that came later – only filmed in Britain, only British actors. Oh, okay. it, they had to be from the UK. So nobody doing a fake accent could be hired into these movies. Interesting. That's not to say that people who worked on the film couldn't be American. Like, yeah, there are a lot of directors and screenwriters and stuff who were American or Canadian and things like that. The first movie came out in 2001. The screenplay was by Steve Cloves. He did all but the fifth, I think. Um, And J.K. Rowling had to be involved Mm -hmm. because all the books weren't written yet. So she had to say, keep this character, (laughs) cut that plot line. And it was important because they didn't want to spend the money on Dobby in Chamber of Secrets. And she said, you have to. He's a vital. I can't like he's vital. You have to. What a power too that like a lot of Mm -hmm. authors don't have with their work. Right. You know, where it's like. I feel like everybody could see that this was going to make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. So, like, they literally had to listen to her. Yeah. <laughs> and she actually pulled Alan Rickman aside, and he was the only person who knew that Severus Snape was a good guy. Because she said, you have to play it in this way. Wow. But he was never allowed to, like, tell anybody that. So he was, like, a secret keeper for that for years so that he understood how to play Snape yeah. to Harry. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in his eyes. Yeah. Now that you know, you're like, oh. the final uh book was broken into two movies that were released in november 2010 and july 2011 respectively then she signed with warner brothers for a five film series of fantastic beasts and where to find them which 
is set roughly 70 years before Harry Potter, exploring the wizarding world through Newt Scamander, the author of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them in Dumbledore's Timeline. Um, the first one was really cool, really great, really interesting. The second one, the screenplay was shit because she is not a screenplay writer and she wrote it herself. Oh, no. So they delayed the third movie. She brought Steve Kloves back on and he helped her write the third okay. movie that just recently came out that's still supposedly a five film set. But Joe is um, going through a lot of personal growth, right? She had, for a long time, been portrayed in the media as a penniless divorcee hitting the jackpot. And that's why the public loved her so much. It was a rags-to-riches story. But religiously, there is backlash against her books. Do you remember this at all? Oh, my gosh. Do I remember The Christians hate the occult. (laughs) I remember one time I had gotten like, I was like really into like, you know, like fortune tellers when I was a kid. I was very dramatic at some points. Was? And and (laughs) (laughs) so I remember at some point Leah Cronin was over my oldest brother's first girlfriend. And I was like, I like put on a scarf or whatever. And I was like, Leah, like, let me tell you a fortune. She goes, I don't believe in that. That's satanic. I was like, oh, okay. I was in like elementary school. Calm down. (laughs) Calm down, Leah. (laughs) Pretty sure they told the future in the Bible a lot. That's what a prophet is, actually. So calm down. (laughs) Yeah, no, they they were like book burnings in the Bible Belt. Like, Mm -hmm. especially in the United States where witchcraft has been condemned by our Puritans. Mm -hmm. This was, like, really, really bad. But Joe identifies as a very strong Christian and attends church Mm. and um, was, like, faith was a huge part of writing these books. And then... Specifically, when the themes in the book started getting towards the end about love and dying to save people and sacrifice and how Neville Longbottom is like John the Baptist, like coming right before Jesus and like all these things. And people were like, well, that's really ironic that you were burning her books. And literally Harry Potter's like an Aslan character. He Mm -hmm. dies to save people and then comes back to life. Calm down. It's the hero's journey that we're all used to. So. It was just one of those things where we were dead center in the moral majority. The reg- We were still in the Reagan moral majority in those 90s yeah. that's like we're burning books. Yeah. Which if anybody is burning books, they're not somebody you need to be around. Yeah. So um, Joe did get married in that gap between the two books. I know I'm jumping around in the timeline. It just made sense to finish the Harry yeah. Potter books and then come back. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. She did marry Neil Murray. He is a doctor. They were going to get married in July in the Galapagos, but then it leaked to the press and they had to delay their wedding and uh. they had to move it. And when a photo of them and their daughter was released in a magazine, they had to seek a more private life for themselves. Um, They have two children together, David in 2003 and Mackenzie in 2005. But Joe has a very difficult relationship with the press, as we can see in the way that she writes and treats Rita Skeeter. She hates the press and has even described herself as too thin-skinned to deal with criticism online. Mm. She has taken more than 50 action suits against the press hates the British tabloids and has successfully sued the tabloids wow. several times. Um, Forbes has said that uh, in 2004 that she is the first billion dollar author. She denied having a billion dollars and they eventually took it back because 
of all of her charities. She oh. donates enough money to not be a billionaire. Yeah. She's been listed as the world's highest paid author. She's been ranked as the 196th richest person in the UK, which is a lot being that they have a lot of kings and queens there. Yeah. Actually, they have like two. <laughs> she, she does own two multi-million dollar homes in Kensington and in Scotland. Uh, Joe gives away tons of money. She is the under Elton John, the next highest charitable giver in the UK. Wow. Yeah. So her charity is called Lumos and it's for orphans or children suffering from abuse. Right now they're working with the children in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. She's given tons of money to victims of sexual violence, um, and multiple sclerosis, obviously because of her mm -hmm. life and her mom's life. Her book, Quidditch Through the Ages and Fantastic Beasts, uh, were written specifically to sell and give all of the proceeds away to charity. Oh. And then when she wrote Tales of Beetle the Bard, it was auctioned and Amazon bought it. So Amazon owns Tales of Beetle the Bard, and it was the most expensive book ever auctioned off. That little teeny <laughs> Tales of Beetle the Bard. All of which I own, unfortunately. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I bought that book uh -huh. for the girls. <sighs> After her huge explosion with Harry Potter, she still wanted to write, but she wanted to write adult novels. Mm -hmm. So her first adult book was called The Casual Vacancy in 2012. The book is a really dark political commentary. I read this one. It's kind of slow um, and interesting. It deals with like different families living in different village community lives in Britain. It's very dry British satire. Mm -hmm. um, it's sold out, of course. Mm -hmm. um, it was made into like a movie slash BBC Showtime show later, which is dark and political. And the show was kind of better than the book. I just think it's like we were so used to the fantasy that the political satire yeah. was off. But she does so much political satire in Harry Potter that yeah. it shouldn't have been a surprise. Mm -hmm. But she wanted to write for adults and not have a circus. For a long time, she talked about writing detective novels. And she was talking about it and talking about it and then stopped talking about it. But at the same time, these books by a man named Robert Gilbreth started coming out. They're a whole detective series, the first of which is called The Cuckoo's Calling. It came out in 2013. And it won debut author of the year and all these other things. And then somebody got on Twitter and said, I read Cuckoo's Calling and I think this is too good to be a debut novel. It's too good. It didn't initially sell a lot of copies, but people liked it and it was seen as really good by critics uh, until people found out that Robert is actually J.K. Rowling. She has written several books in this series at Ro as Robert Gilbreth. Um, one was released in 2000. First one was 13, then 14, 15, 18, 20, and 22. So this is a crime series wow. of like a detective solving crime. So it's more like the um, Baker Street, you know, like, yes, where it's very British, very like it's everyone's a new plot. Like you're watching CSI. Right. Have you read these? Um, I haven't. I know that it's uh, a a disabled veteran war veteran from the Iraqi the Afghanistan war is the detective. Okay. So it kind of sounds like a new Poirot almost. Yeah. Cuz like that's yes. kind of his character. Exactly. Okay. It's exactly like that. And um you know the BBC has also made um a series about it. Okay. And it, we can get it in the US and Canada on HBO. Okay. So 
I don't know. I'm interested in reading it. I would like to read it. I'm not a big tr- crime novel person, mm-hmm. but I, you know, sometimes I read them. Mm-hmm. So I might pick it up and save. Then, of course, in 2011, the Pottermore webpage comes out and changes everything because this is <laughs> after the last movie. It released information about the background of the characters, almost like an encyclopedia. I referenced that on the McGonagall episode. Mm-hmm. We got her whole backstory. So really, J.K. Rowling was writing essays about characters. This yeah. is where we got the house quiz, where we could all get actually mm-hmm. sorted. It's where we did our Patronus quiz and much, much more. There are currently two illustrated versions coming out. One is large and flat, the art by Jim Kay. One is a small pop-up pop-up series, the art by Mina Lima, as opposed to the original artist of the American covers, Mary Grand Prix. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child then came (laughs) out, and it was a fan fiction approved by J.K. Rowling, and then it's a like two-part broadway west end play which really kind of fucked with the canon a little bit yeah the way it is but i've heard if you see it on stage it's incredible yeah the problem is you have to give up your entire day because it's two broadway plays did you know that no i did not a (laughs) two-hour play you leave the studio and come back for another two-hour play no thank you yeah it's no, two separate plays. So like it's like you get your two 15 minute intermissions and then one like two hour intermission in between. That's insane. That's too much. It's, it's insane. Shorten it down. Yeah. Shorten it down. Okay. Her first children's book since Harry Potter, the Ichabog came out during COVID-19. She released it free online in the United Kingdoms. The Ichabog is a monster that turns out to be real and a group of children find out the truth and save the day. So it's very cute. She also wrote a book called The Christmas Pig where a young boy loses his favorite stuffed animal and has to travel to a fantastic land uh, to retrieve his lost toy, which is so cute. I should get it for Liza. What we love about her children's writing is the juxtaposition that she uses of ordinary children with extraordinary powers. It's Mm -hmm. relatable because it's the little boy with broken glasses and the scar. It's in every child. And I feel like she takes kids seriously Mm -hmm. in a way that a lot of writers don't, Mm -hmm. you know, and the kids are taken so seriously that like they are often trying to like fix situations that the adults are totally ignoring. Right. And she took children's literature to a level where she was writing about genocide. Yeah. Like when we get to the end Harry Potter books, it's about war and the genocide of uh, underprivileged people. Yeah. Which is shocking. Yeah. Well, also, I think it's important that she like aged the books as her readers. Yes. We all aged together for sure. I felt like when the first book came out, it's like a lot of kids read it. Some adults read it. And then like, I don't know, they just got more intense and like, you didn't feel like you had to be like embarrassed about reading the fifth yeah. Harry Potter book, even though you were like a teenager now. <laughs> right. I was like in college yeah. <laughs> like reading that. Now I was, a, I think a junior in high school when that one came out. Yeah. So Joe's books have brought a lot of people hope. Like I said earlier, when Dumbledore was announced as gay, people identify with Lupin as being AIDS or HIV positive. Polyjuice potion and animaguses can transfigure into new and different things. But then they changed recently the gender recognition laws in the UK and her views on sex and gender have provoked serious controversy. Here's what happened. 
a woman named Maya Forstarter um, or Forstatter tweeted kind of like this joke quoting an article um, using her own views on trans women. And the joke was about using the phrase, quote, women who menstruate as if people who anybody who doesn't menstruate is not a woman. Mm-hmm. And she lost her contract at her job for tweeting that. J.K. Rowling came out in support of her saying that, you know, it's her freedom of speech to say that on Twitter and she shouldn't lose her job because of it. Specifically, this is what she said afterwards in a tweet. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but a keyword but, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. So that statement is really, from what I can tell, bound around the fact that she was a woman dealing with domestic abuse and um, was born and identified woman at birth. Uh And she feels like domestic abuse doesn't happen to women who are identified male male at birth. And that's just not the case. No, It's just not the case. And I think that she thinks that that, is true so she's saying it's taking away from the lived experience of quote-unquote real women so her initial tweet is not too destructive it's bad it's definitely bad but her statements i mean divided feminists that's where we get like a lot of turfs right Mm -hmm. um trans exclusionary radical feminists which are just not Welcome here. Fuck your feminism if you're not inclusive. Mm-hmm. And it fueled a lot of debates on freedom of speech and academic freedom and cancel culture and promoted huge support for the transgender community in the literary world. And if that is where it ended and she said sorry and like I didn't necessarily know what I was talking about, that would have been fine. But then she published a four page op ed piece explaining why trans women aren't women and the like I read it I went and read the whole thing and the problem with it is she's such a good writer she almost convinces you so like anybody who's on the fence is gonna read it and go oh that makes sense yeah and that's so so bad because that's the exact thing like there are sometimes I get in debates with people who are politically different from me and they're so well versed in their yeah. political opinions that I feel stupid. And I'm like, yeah. oh, maybe I am wrong. Yeah. So this was really rough. And then people in the trans community. Now, there were several people just openly attacking her, which we know she hates. So she put her wall up. Yeah. Because I felt like even before this, she had like gotten off Twitter and then she'd gotten back on. Yes. And this happened. So she like, said her. She's weak skinned like, in this God, area. Like just. She should have just stayed off. Stay. And, like, also, like, people should not immediately bully people online either. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't speak out for yourself. Yeah. I'm saying, like, do what the – there's a group of people who reached out to her and said, hey, we want to, like, talk to you about Mm -hmm. this. Like, we're big supporters of your work. Like, let's discuss why your opinion is misinformed. Yes. And then the bigger problem is she turned them down. Oh, yeah. To talk to them. And it's like that's where the problem is. You have to put up so you put up so many walls to protect yourself from online harassment that then when somebody really wants to help you, mm-hmm. you're not open to being helped. Yeah. And like her opinions are very wrong. Daniel Radcliffe was the first star to speak out against her. Wow. 
openly saying she is wrong. I disagree with everything she's saying, and this is not what the Harry Potter franchise stands for. Then very quick rebuttal from all the other actors, even um, Newt Scamander, the actor who plays Eddie Ed Helms. No, it's Eddie Remade. Eddie Remain spoke out and was like, I will back out of the movie if she has too much to do with me. Um, so they had to deal with that fire. Warner Brothers also didn't invite her to that anniversary show over COVID because they didn't want to pick sides. So yeah. it is very like the, the community is very, very hurt from this. Yes. And it's almost like she shut down on her fans. Yeah. Like, sorry, I hate you. I'm gone now. Yeah. And it's like, well, what's well, also like, okay, so like you can just walk away from this. But like, if you're a person who feels like personally victimized by this, it's like, right. I can't just walk away from the fact that I'm fucking hurt. Cause yeah. like, this is my life. Like I'm in this community and like, I'm not <laughs> billionaire JK. I can't right. just like be like, okay, I'm done with this now. Like it's not fun at this moment. So mm-hmm. I'm going to step, step aside rather than just learning mm-hmm. from this experience. And I think that's like the hard thing. It's like so many people like learn and grow from these books. Yeah. And then like, you're not willing to listen to the people that have made you fucking a, mil- a billionaire. billionaire, you know, it's really frustrating. Yeah. I mean, the way that I, like I said earlier, the way that I have coped with it because I am a huge fan is through purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know she's never going to lose the amount of money we need her no. to lose. But like, I am halfway through buying those two illustrated versions. Mm-hmm. I immediately stopped buying the new yeah. versions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I go to Universal Studios, I don't go through the Harry Potter park it, unless it's a free ticket into that area. Yeah. Um, and specifically, I do buy Harry Potter merchandise, but I buy it from Etsy. Yeah. Let's give the money to yes, the people. To the creators. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go. Let's turn it around and give it to the amazing people who are creating. Yeah. And say like, yeah, like Caroline's room. My daughter is entirely Harry Potter decked out. Either mm-hmm. we made it or we bought it from Etsy, yeah. which is the right way to spend your money when you're trying to kind of boycott a person, but not give up on a fandom. Yeah. And I don't want to like discourage people like if. You know, like they have a young person in their life who's never read the books. Like, I don't want to discourage you from like no. getting kids into it because, like, we had talked earlier tonight about how, like, it these books created a whole revolution of kids reading again. Right. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about the legacy yeah. in like two seconds. But yeah, it really changed the world. Yeah. But and I like, mean, literature for the better. Yeah. There are several authors that are famous because of her solely. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. We know that. I mean, the most recent update is in April of 2023. It was announced that the Harry Potter television series is going to be streaming. Um, they're doing all seven books as in seasonal shows, which will be great because we'll get things like Spew that we didn't get in the movies. Or uh, Peeves. Yeah, Peeves. He's not in the yeah, <laughs> movies. Uh, they cast, so they cast him and filmed yeah. some scenes, but then cut it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like in-depth stuff they don't go into, which will be nice. Um, some people are really excited. Some people are like, don't mess with it. Yeah. I'm kind of on the fence. Yeah. Do we need this? Yeah. And the thing (laughs) is they're going to have to either film it super duper fast or recast the kids over and over again, which was kind of the problem with the movies. That's why they had to come out so, so fast. Back to back to back to back. So the legacy of Harry Potter is definitely undeniable. It's a crossover between children and adult literature it was first to blow up on the internet. It brought reading back to children. 
children's literature grew in cultural and critical status and it changed the writing world. They had to start selling books globally at the same exact time. Like I said, these books also hit when there was a personal connection between the author and the people so that the people feel like they have a personal connection with the canon. They have a say. Um, And the author can then be like, hey, I can give you a personal background on one of these authors if everybody online votes for which one they want to hear about. (laughs) And modern readers just have ownership of the texts like that. Harry Potter absolutely changed my life. I was a very very struggling reader and these books made me excited to read Mm -hmm. I had not been excited to read everything was hard for me the books they assigned at school were too hard or they were things like Wuthering Heights where I was like this old English I don't Johnny Tremaine yeah like I don't care about her I was like I don't care and I don't get it so this was like the first time that I remember not being able to put a book down Mm -hmm. and I am now a voracious reader so that's a really weird thing like I'm in what is it? It's June 1st, and I've read 75 books this year. Yeah. Like, there, I'm either listening to or reading a book all the time. So, what Rowling says, and I don't think we can forget the, the terrible things she says, I'm going to offer her grace in hoping that she has a change of heart and a change yeah. of mind in the next couple of years. You know, it's only been two and a half years since she said those things. Yeah. And she has a kid my she has kids my age and younger than me. That, and our like, parents I can't imagine aren't talking to her about and this. And our parents feel the same way. Yeah. I know my parents do. Yeah. So I like I I kind of understand that generational gap that I'm hoping that she will take the time to educate herself yeah. on at some point. Um so all I want to end with a quote from her that said, I would like to be remembered as someone who did the best she could with the talent she had. And that yeah. is J.K. Rowling. All right. Whew. Interesting tale. Meaty, meaty, meaty tale. Yes. Well. All right. Well, now we need to talk about these two ladies together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. All right. I actually feel like they had a lot similar in their early life. Like, I agree. As, as soon as, like, they, they even had close birthdays. Like, they were yeah. both born in late July. They're the oldest girls, entertaining their siblings, voracious readers. Like, readers. Love the classics. Like, very uh, similar beginnings. Yeah, and that at early ages struggled with a lot of loss. They lost yeah. family members or lost money, um, struggling felt, in poverty. I felt like both of their households just kind of, fell apart in their teens Mm -hmm. like not when they were kids but when they were teens with younger siblings to account for Mm -hmm. which I think can really shape a person and I think that also like because we didn't really talk about this in Charlotte's story but like Charlotte had always been interested in the theater like her uncle like took her to see a play and like changed her life and I feel like she was rebellious and like wanting to be a part of the theater. Cause like we talked about, there was a lot of prostitution involved, like a lot of sex work and like just, there was a lot of negative stuff that people talked about in reference to the theater that was true at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, and I felt like Joe had that same kind of thing of like, she's a teenager and she's just kind of mad. And she's like, all right, well like I'm going to rebel in like the ways that I can, even though, they were both really smart and really good students. Yeah. Like, they also wanted to do things right and well. 
<laughs> they wanted to do them right and well, and they both got introduced into like the world of the arts. Yes. And then it was like, I, well, you know, I might work this side job, whether mm-hmm. it's at a boarding house or at a cafe or whatever I'm doing. But they were both really like, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps yeah. kind of stories. And they both had to restart multiple times, mm-hmm. but always focused on the same thing. So sometimes people restart and they totally change their trajectory. You know, they're like, all right, stop, pivot, go this way. That right. way is not working. But I feel like they both have the same goal. Like, mm-hmm. Joe was like, I'm going to write. And Charlotte was like, I'm going to act, whether these people want me here or not. <laughs> like, that is my goal. Um, and it's funny because we're talking about, like, their art and their craft. And I kind of feel like with Joe, she is really like her talent lies in creating these new characters, mm-hmm. you know, and like creating a literal entire world. Whereas I feel like Charlotte, her talent was perfecting the classics. Mm. You know, she didn't star usually in like new and upcoming plays. She must have done, I can't even begin to imagine the times that she had done the play Hamlet. Mm-hmm. How many times? She so literally nice. did it everywhere she went. Like, to the point where it's probably just like, all right, yeah, like, I got it in the back of my head. Like, she probably hadn't looked at the script for Hamlet in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, but also they both perfected what they were doing by using grief. Mm, like, when mm-hmm. she lost Arthur and when um, Joe lost her mother, like, they took that grief and they put it into the performance. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is what made it so real and meaty for people. They were like, oh, I get it because I've dealt with grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's something very... uh relatable Mm -hmm. that again even if you've seen hamlet a million times when you see charlotte doing hamlet and she's just lost her brother and she's feeling like you know david like it feels different well same way like we said there's a thousand books about kids going to wizarding school yeah i'm sure i have 50 different versions of it on my bookshelf but when you do it the harry potter way it was Mm -hmm. done different yeah yeah and I do feel like they both kind of took charge of their careers, too. Oh, yeah. You know, and kind of, like, ha- started to have more of a say. Like I'm going to play Hamlet now. Yes. Like, I'm going to play Hamlet. I'm going to play Romeo. I'm going to do these parts. My sister's going to be Juliet. And, like, you're just going to have to deal with it. Right. I'm going to wait three years to write this book. Yes, I exactly. need a break. Mm-hmm. I need to make sure there's only British actors in this or UK yeah. actors. Like, very specific needs that because they were so powerful and so wealthy mm-hmm. from what they did, they were so accomplished that yeah. their needs could be had to be met. Yeah. Had to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're both rags to riches, too. Like, I yeah. feel like they both kind of like were at a rock bottom at some point in their life. And, you know, and, and maybe that's also why we love their stories, because it kind of feels like, well, if they did it, I can do it, too. Yeah. And I loved when you said the way that Charlotte was feeling about John Wilkes Booth. And you were like, it's kind of like when someone in your high school you find out is a mass shooter. I feel like that's how a lot of people felt about J.K. Mm. Rowling. They were like, Joe was one of us. She was one of our champions. We loved her. We supported her. We identified with her characters. And that's how she thinks. Yeah. It's really devastating. Yeah. And it broke so many people's hearts. Yeah. Because... We're literally talking about a woman in the 1800s who is out marrying women. And cross-dressing a lot. Cross-dressing, paying alimony to women. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's hard because, like, you want to kind of be like, this isn't a new thing. Because I think that that's one of the ways that people kind of 
disrespect, especially like trans, trans culture, community, yes. community is they're like, well, this is just a new fad. And it's like, actually, it's not. It's existed for quite some time. We know that especially in like the 1800s. Like we have the fucking plated photography mm-hmm. of women who passed as men and lesbian couples and like gay like male gay couple and like, like lily elb yeah exactly like people existed These eddie remain played lily elb in the movie right. like if we're talking about crossovers yeah. like which it's just like i hate the idea that they are just like it just doesn't exist because it does right it exists and it's valid and i just feel like i wonder like what the story would be if like the news of charlotte like really did break open and people might be feeling the way that they did about i don't know like well maybe people would feel like charlotte's breaking my heart i can't believe that she's doing this terrible thing right now which is obviously totally different than what jk rowling's doing yeah but it's like i don't know what i'm trying to say Well, i think that's why her celebrity was left in the dust yeah like i think it's people knew and were uncomfortable with her lifestyle yeah and like with just with her being in love with a woman yeah (laughs) many many women (laughs) but there's tons of dudes that are in love with many women yeah and like they are fine with it but they were uncomfortable with her and we lost her because of that we lost her in the shuffle we really did and because yet nobody wants to talk about this famous person that Mm -hmm. was so openly queer yeah in the past because it I don't know, for years, you know, history only remembered who we wanted to and who looked the best on paper. And, like, Charlotte didn't for a long time. And I think what's so disheartening is that Charlotte was so openly a lesbian Mm -hmm. and so successful, but that doesn't change anyone's mind. Yeah. But J.K. Rowling wrote one four-page op-ed piece, and because she was so successful it reaffirmed in people's brains that they were right, that trans women aren't women women, and they're wrong. That's just not true. Yeah. Like lived experience, like it doesn't take away from the lived experience of women identified as women at birth. Right. To be a trans woman. No. So it's just so upsetting to me because I've loved her for so long. And I'm just like, why? Why? It's hard because like, the, the again like the problem is that she doubled down on it double so down yeah well crossing our fingers still hold out a future that. <laughs> a future where learning and respectful conversation is possible yes we'll see. all right well now it's time to toast these ladies yeah who would you like to toast this evening um tonight i want to educate the trans educated people who reached out to talk to jk um, I know it didn't work yet, but I think that reacting with kindness rather yeah. than anger, hate, and cancel culture on the internet is the right way to move in the right yes. direction. I'm not saying we don't need radical people, but I want to toast the people who can be yeah. kind like that. Agreed. Because I don't have my head in situations Cheers. like that. Nope. <laughs> I want to toast the women who just live as themselves oh yeah i'm reading a book right now where it's like this person it's funny how well uh, i didn't plan this but the book i'm reading really paralleled with charlotte's story Mm. and it's so sad to see this person in this book be like if i come out i will ruin everything Mm -hmm. and like charlotte definitely wasn't like 
as out as, you know, maybe like a Kristen Stewart would be mm-hmm. these days. But she wasn't hiding it. Mm-hmm. Like, she was openly living and getting photographed with other women. And I just, I want to toast the women who pioneer just being like, I'm here. Hi. Hello. Especially <laughs> right under the nose of the yep. papacy. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> okay. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I went to see The Little Mermaid in theaters. How was it? It is a runtime of two hours and 15 minutes. Not so bad. It's, yeah. yeah. It's okay. It's good. That's it's a long. short movie by today's standards. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but it is so good. It's so good. I yeah. like the first 10 or 15 minutes. I didn't know if I was entirely sold on Scuttle and Flounder and this and that. Mm-hmm. But I was laughing. Aww. We were all like looking at each other. It was so good prince eric is adorable he good. has his own little ballad to sing elena wow. uh, our friends who is a big disney fan said it was great she loved i it. loved it yeah the girls loved it we had a great evening mm. i just thought uh, melissa mccarthy knocked <laughs> ursula out of the i was hoping park. she would because <laughs> i love her <laughs> yeah um i it was just, I mean, Aquafina is Scuttle, so of course. Is she really? Yes. I love her. <laughs> I know. And Davi Diggs with Sebastian. Like, the whole thing is just good. Um, so I was just really happy to see it, and I was happy to be there with my kids. And because Little Mermaid came out when I was so young, it's like my Frozen. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So, like. That and Beauty and the Beast were the two that came out when I was like a toddler. Yeah. And I loved those so much. So now mm-hmm. that they're both people movies, I'm like, <laughs> I get what I want. Perfect. Okay. What are you going to promote? I am going to promote fresh flowers. I, my garden is blooming right now. It's yeah. looking so good. I have a fresh bouquet on my countertop from Trader Joe's. I have another one upstairs that I picked out of my own garden. And mm. I just, I want to recommend having fresh flowers in the house because I feel like it's just so nice. And every time I look at it, it brings me an absurd amount of joy. And I just love it. And like Trader Joe's is such a great place to get fresh cut flowers. There is no greater flex than real plants and flowers in your house. It's the best. Biggest flex. I just love it. (laughs) So I do like, I was just thinking about it today. I was, I was kind of like walking through and I was like, that's really nice. (laughs) So Invest in a nice vase for yourself. Not even like an expensive one, just like a cute one that like you love Mm -hmm. and put some fresh cut flowers in it. Do it. All right. Find us everywhere. Like us, love us, hate us, write Mm -hmm. us a review, Mm -hmm. click the five stars. That's free. You can join us on Patreon, which again is updating a little bit more slowly. I don't know what's going on with it. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to fix it, but all the things are getting uploaded eventually. It's just taking forever. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. We'll be online. You can find us there. Uh, And if you want to join us for a little bit more again, come join our Patreon. Mm -hmm. But we also want you to never forget that well-behaved women don't think love is love. No. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. Goodbye.